Good morning. We are continuing in the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 to 21. If you've got a Bible, get over to Philippians chapter 3. We will be rounding out chapter 3 this morning. I don't know how many of you remember the television show Mork and Mindy uh, from the late 1970s and early 1980s. Uh, Here's a great picture uh, of Mork and Mindy. Uh, If you don't remember the show, uh, let me just give you a little bit of background. The show was primarily a vehicle for Robin Williams' wackiness and insanity, Uh, but it did have a plot. And uh, if you don't remember the plot of the show, it was this. Robin Williams played Mork, and uh, Mork was an alien. And by alien, I don't mean he immigrated here from Luxembourg or something like that. Uh, He was an alien from another planet. Uh, He came from the planet of Ork, and his name was Mork from Ork. And uh, he left his planet because they asked him to leave. Uh, On Ork, humor was not highly regarded. And so they asked him to leave his planet and come to Earth, and they gave him an assignment, which was to study the people of Earth and report back on the customs of Earth back to Ork. So he came to Earth, he met Pam Dauber, who played Mindy, eventually they fell in love, of course, as you would imagine, but, but what was interesting about the show was that uh, Mork was always trying to adjust to life on Earth, living as an alien on another planet. The people of Ork had different customs. As I said, they didn't use humor. They didn't get it. They didn't get married. Uh, they aged backwards. They were born looking very old, and they aged until they were babies. Uh, they drank with their fingers. There were all sorts of different customs that they had. So at the end of every show, there would be a scene where Mork would be reporting back to his boss on Ork, explaining what earth was like and maybe receiving instructions for what he should do next. I grew up watching it in syndication, and maybe some of you did as well. And what's interesting about the show is that premise that although he lives here, although he looks like an earthling, his loyalty, his allegiance is to somewhere else. The reason I share that is because when we get into Philippians 3, 17 to 21, that's the message of the end of Philippians 3, that you and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, we live here. We are earthlings, but we're citizens of heaven. So that we're people that although we look like everybody else, we have a loyalty that is somewhere else because we have a relationship with Jesus Christ, who is the king of heaven. And so instead of following the values and the customs of the world we are living in, we follow the values, the customs, the direction of our Savior. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 to 14, refers to God's people as strangers and exiles. And it says, people who are strangers and exiles, that's us. We're looking for a place of our own. We're looking for our own homeland, is the way that the author of Hebrews puts it. That those who set their hope on heaven, although they live on earth, they're looking for a home they can call their own. I don't know if you've ever had the sense, as a believer in Jesus Christ, that you were just out of place. That you just didn't quite belong. Because the values of the place we live are so different from the values of the place that we belong. 
as we look at humanity throughout the scripture and then just observe humanity, one thing I notice, everybody's looking for what you might call a homeland, right? Everybody wants somewhere to belong. So think about it this way. If you think about a city, in any city, there are certain things you're looking for. So there, there's leadership, right? So the city of College Station, there's a mayor, there's a city council. There are people who lead it, that make the rules, that, that set some of the laws that help guide us as a city or as a state or as a nation. There are also places where you can get your needs met. There are stores where you can buy food, where you can buy clothes, where you can buy the things that you need. There are places to get your needs met. There are people. You want belonging. You want acceptance. You want approval. You want love. There are people in a city. Everybody's looking for a place. And here's what most of us do is we construct in our minds and hearts what the ideal city should be. We say, I need a place where I'm loved, where I belong, where my needs are met. And then what most of us in the world do is we say, now I'm going to go out and I'm going I'm to construct that place. Whatever I think I need to make me happy, I will find it. I need money to be secure. So I'll try to find a job where I can get enough money. I want work because work helps me feel significant, like I have a place in the world. So I go find a job where I'm significant. I want to be happy. I want pleasure. So I might look for pleasure in food or in sex or in drink or in fun. I want friends. So I try to move somewhere or join a club or join a school where I belong. And so we try to construct a world for ourselves that meets our needs. That is the way of the world because the longing of our hearts is to belong. But here's the danger is that our need for a place, if we're looking for a place that is rooted anywhere other than in the person of Jesus Christ, we can drift very quickly into sin, into illegitimate ways of finding that place. Because here's what happens is we say, look, I need to be happy. I need to be secure. I need to be significant. I need to belong. And if I cannot find that in the people and the things around me, I resort to sin, right? I either resort to some sort of greed or violence or immorality to take what I think I need. Or what I do is I conclude, I'll never have what I want and need. So I'll just escape and I'll numb myself with whatever is available. That's the darkness and the sin of the world that we live in. So that in Philippians 3, as Paul has been walking us through this concept that our lives are made for Jesus Christ, That the greatest thing we could do with our lives is pour our lives out for the sake of the gospel. As he gets to the end of chapter 3, remember in the previous passage, Gavin talked about it last week. He says, Paul says, look, I am straining forward for the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. That is, Paul says, I'm not there yet, but I'm going to tell you this. Everything in my life is oriented toward the kingdom of Jesus Christ. He says, I center my life. We just sang it. I center my life on the things of Jesus Christ. 
And so what Paul tells us to do here in Philippians 3, 17 to 21, he says, if you want to be a person who pours your life out for Jesus, you need to begin to transfer your allegiance, right? So when you're thinking about a kingdom, when you're thinking about the life you want, instead of thinking about the earthly things that surround us, you say, my allegiance and my hope and my loyalty and my future belongs with Jesus Christ. And so I will transfer all my hope and allegiance there and not here. And then Paul says that allows us to look and say, I know the day is coming when Jesus will return and the kingdom of Jesus will be here. That the people of God who trust in Jesus Christ will rise again and we will live in a kingdom where we have everything we could ever hope for or need because it's all found in Jesus Christ. That's the message of Philippians 3, 17 to 21. But it's a struggle because we live in enemy territory. Because we live surrounded by those who just follow what their eyes, minds, and heart say they think they need. And even as believers in Jesus Christ, we can be pulled into that chaos and sin as we try to build our own city. And so Philippians 3 is about transferring our allegiance from the things of earth to the things of heaven. Look with me at Philippians 3. I'm going to start in verse 17. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. First thing Paul says is this, we live in enemy territory. Now he begins the passage by saying, what I want you to do is you follow the example you have in me. Now I read that and I thought, man, that's a bold thing to say. Is Paul just being kind of arrogant here? He goes, if you're going to imitate somebody, it's me. That's not exactly what's going on. He's not being arrogant, remember, because in just the previous passage, Paul had in fact said, I haven't gotten there yet. But what he's saying here is, here's what I want you to imitate, is I transfer all my vision, all my hope, all my allegiance to Jesus Christ. See, Paul had told us he had everything in his circles that the world could offer. He had position, he had prestige, he did what was right by the law. He said, if anybody could put confidence in the flesh, it was me. But he says, you know what? Once I saw Jesus Christ, all of that became so secondary that he says, I consider it but dung or rubbish compared to the glory of knowing Jesus Christ. Here he says, look, I want you to follow that example. You look at the things you put your hope in, whether it's a person, whether it's a relationship, whether it's some vision of the good life that you have. You look at the things you put your hope in, and Paul says, I want you to transfer your allegiance and hope from those things or people to Jesus Christ. He says, you follow my example, as well as those who have followed the pattern we've talked about. Remember Timothy and Epaphroditus and other men and women who have followed this pathway to say, Jesus will be my allegiance. But Paul says it's tough to do. It is hard to be a person whose first allegiance is to Jesus. And here's why. It says, because many walk as enemies of the cross of Jesus Christ. 
So as you're surrounded by those who are driven by the enemy's values, it is difficult to do the right thing when we are surrounded by those who are driven by the impulses of the flesh, when we live in a world that is driven by the impulses of whatever they believe will make them happy. And so he says, you live in enemy territory. Earlier this week, I ran across a story about a woman in World War II. Her name was Martha Cohn. Martha Cohn was a a member of the French army. She was an intelligence officer. She joined in 1944. Now, Martha Cohn was a Jewish woman, but she had blonde hair and blue eyes. And one day, she was in the offices of the French intelligence service, and her commander, her boss, discovered that she could also speak German. Right, So you have a Jewish woman, blonde hair, blue eyes, she can speak German, and her, her commanding officer said, you know what, this is a great asset to the French army. So you know what they did? They sent her into Germany to gather intelligence. So for, for weeks, in fact months, she lived in Germany, and she posed as a German woman who had lost her fiancé somewhere on the front lines of the German army. And so she began to ask German soldiers, have you seen him? She had a picture of a German soldier who actually had died, but she said, this is my fiancé. Have you seen him? And they began to give her tours of everything going on in the German army, where the troops were located, who was commanding them. She learned what their plans were, and all along she began transmitting that information back to the allies in France. So that while she was living in Germany, she was loyal to France. And in fact, when the American forces moved into Germany in 1945, she came ahead of them. And she pretended to be afraid of the Americans, and she told the German soldiers, I'm so afraid of the Americans, can you help me? And the German soldiers said, hey, don't worry. The German army is hiding right there in those trees. And she relayed that information back to the American army. She lived in one place, her loyalty to another. She looked like the residents of one place. She spoke like the residents of one place. But her loyalty was to another place. She was in enemy territory but she was true to the values of her homeland. Paul says, look, it's it's hard to be loyal to Jesus when we live in enemy territory. He says, many walk, and he says, I tell you this even weeping. He says, it grieves me that many walk as enemies of the cross of Jesus Christ. These were probably people, these, these ones walking as enemies were probably people who had had some kind of influence on those who were in Philippi, on this church in Philippi. They may have even been people who said, I believe in Jesus. But subsequently, they began to walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. And Paul tells them, not only are you living in a world that is opposed to the gospel, but even some that you count as your friends and maybe even fellow worshipers are walking as enemies of the cross of Christ. And then he goes on to describe the pathway of those who are held captive by the enemy. He says their end is destruction. Doesn't necessarily mean they're going to hell. We don't know exactly who these enemies are, but it does mean they're on a path toward both spiritual and physical destruction. 
That is, they are, they are pursuing a path of sin that is separating them from a close relationship with God, separating them from relationships in the body of Christ, and leading even possibly towards, toward death. He says their end is destruction. And then he says their God literally is their belly or their appetite. Now, now we read a passage like that and, and our, our immediate instinct is to think about one sin, which would be gluttony, right? Is Paul saying that there are people out there who eat too many cookies and stay away? Well, that might be actually one aspect of somebody being driven by their appetite, but it's, but it's much broader than that. Their God is their appetite means these are people, because they have walked away from the message of the good news of Jesus Christ. They're simply driven by whatever appetite drives them in the moment, whether that's what they eat, whether that's a sexual appetite, whether that's a need for approval, whether it's a need to escape. Whatever it is, they're just driven by whatever they feel in the moment. Remember, because they're trying to construct a kingdom, a city, and they say, this is what I need. And over here, there's something that looks shiny that I want to add to my city. There's something I need that's going to make me feel secure. I'm going to add it to my city. There's something I want that will bring me pleasure and happiness. I will add that building to my city. He says, their God is their appetite. Wherever the winds of their appetites blow, that's where they go. I was thinking about my cat this week as I thought about this idea. I have a cat at home, and my relationship with the cat is best described as being founded on suspicion and mistrust. I don't really care much for the cat, and it's clear the cat doesn't care much for me. She loves my wife. She loves my oldest daughter. When I walk in the room, she gives me the stink eye. She looks at me sideways. She, sometimes I'll be petting her and suddenly she'll just turn on me. She'll hiss at me for no apparent reason. And so I have this, this, this relationship of suspicion with the cat. But sometimes at night, I get tasked with the job of trying to get the cat to be locked up in the laundry room for the night. We lock her up in the laundry room, not because we're cruel, but because if we don't, she will destroy the house while we sleep. So we have a little bed in the laundry room for her, and we try to get her in. And what I've found is this, that if I try to go get the cat, if I try to pick the cat up, she will run away, and she will hide under the bed, and I will never get her. One evening I spent an hour at bedtime with a broom and various implements trying to get her out from under the bed and she would not come and she bit me and she scratched me. She hates me. But it's fascinating. There is a way that I can get her to go into the laundry room. It's easy. I grab her food and I shake the container. And I start pouring the food and she just comes running from wherever she is, from the other side of the house. And she jumps up, she starts to eat that food and I go, see you later. And I close the door and I go to bed. And I always imagine every night after I close that door, she goes, no, again, and again and again. It's the 300th night in a row I have done this to her. But she has no capacity to be driven by anything other than her hunger. And so she comes running every time to follow her appetite. Paul says that's the way of the world. And it may not be what you eat, but it might be what you drink. 
It might be something you watch. It might be some way you numb yourself through the internet or social media. It might be that you chase approval from other people. A couple of months ago, I was, I was talking to somebody who, who is in the, the, the fitness industry, kind of the wellness industry. And one thing he was saying is this. He said, you know, it's interesting with especially younger people, when you start talking to them about why should you eat healthier, why should you try to eat and drink those things that are good for your body? The first thing they, of course, think is if I do that, I will lose weight. Why do they want to lose weight? Well, they want to look better. Why do they want to look better? Because they want to look better. They want to have more dates or they want to have more sex or whatever it may be. They want to hear approval from people. So he said, here's what they do. They transfer actually from one fleshly desire to another one. I simply move from food to sex to approval to whatever it is. And he said, the problem is those motivations only last for a little while because the shine of whatever you're chasing starts to wear off. So they go back to another addiction or another pleasure. And he says, that's what it means to have your God be your appetite. But what Paul is going to get at is he's going to say this, that there is a hope and a meaning in life and a joy in life that is everlasting. So I don't have to just transfer from one desire to the next desire to be blown by the wind, but I can root my life in the promise of an eternal kingdom because Jesus Christ died for my sin and Jesus Christ rose again. And so all who trust in Jesus know that we will be a part of the day when Jesus returns to set up a perfect kingdom. Paul says, you are living in a world in enemy territory. Their God is their appetite. He says their glory is in their shame. The way you might think about this is if you think about a young person, maybe a college student, maybe a high school student, maybe somebody older. And as you talk with them, they begin to boast about things they should be ashamed of. Drunken exploits, poor decisions made under the influence. And they brag about it. They glory in their shame. Paul says that's the way it is when you live in enemy territory. And then he closes this little verse out by saying here's why it happens. They set their minds on earthly things. They look around at the world around them and they say, here's how I think I can be happy. This person over here has something I would like. I'm going to chase it. Or I I saw this show or I saw something on Instagram and I need it. Here's the picture of the life I want. And they set their minds on earthly things. And the the, the implied question for the people of God from this passage is, do, do we set our minds on earthly things? Where do you invest most of your mind time throughout the week? Ask that question. What do you allow to pass simply unfiltered into your brain? What images? What ideas? What messages? 
And then what thoughts do you allow to circle in your brain about why you are unhappy, why you need more, why you need something better? And see, here's what happens is I think we often look at some image of what we think life ought to be like, and it's rooted in earthly things. And so we chase it. And then when it disappoints or we can't get it, you know what we do? We go, God, why won't you give me that? God, why aren't you kind? You see the disconnect. Because the scripture says now, you're setting your hope on things that were never meant to bear that weight. Paul says we live in enemy territory. Citizens of heaven in enemy territory. He goes on and he's going to tell us, here's how we retrain our hope is this, we remember this, we belong to a heavenly kingdom. Look at verses 20 and 21. It says, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself says our, our citizenship is in heaven. Now this word for citizenship that he uses, it's the only time it's used in the New Testament. Only time this exact word is used. There are similar words that are used throughout Philippians, but this is this word. It's, it's polytuma. has the idea probably of like, like a, a commonwealth or a state or a place. Really what he's getting at is our place is in heaven. That is our citizenship. That's where we belong. Okay, now, now it's important to understand some of the background. He's writing to Christians who are in Philippi. If you know anything about Philippi, Philippi was a Roman colony. It was located in Asia Minor. It was located a long ways away from Rome. Right, but Philippi had been afforded a special honor as a colony of Rome, and that is the people of Philippi had full rights as Roman citizens. So they could own land. They could run for office. They they had the right to a trial instead of just being tossed into jail. They had certain rights as citizens of Rome that non-citizens did not have. Not every outpost of the Roman Empire was like that. Well, in Philippi, the people were proud of that. They were proud that although they lived in Philippi, they had a citizenship in Rome. And you see what Paul says. He says, you're proud of that. But what I want you to do is recognize your citizenship is in heaven. That's your real city. That's your real place. You're looking for a place of belonging. It's where Jesus is. And, and what, what the challenge is, is again, that all too often we place all the hopes for our place, for our citizenship, right here. We had an election this week. I don't know if anybody was paying attention. So we went and we voted for whichever party, whichever candidate we felt best represented our values. And, and my guess is that that Tuesday night or Wednesday morning, some in this room felt elated and some felt despair. And some just felt tired. 
and anxious. And so, so you say, you know what, I, I don't want to engage in all that turmoil on Facebook, but it's like a train wreck I can't keep my eyes off of. I got to open it. I got to see. But I hate it. But I hope, I hope my tribe wins. But I know I shouldn't place my hopes there. But sometimes I still do. And I think at its root... Often, the anxiety and the conflict and the stress that we feel is because we we are placing too great a burden of hope on the things of the earth. Look, it's not that we shouldn't have values that that drive our political choices, our votes, and what we believe in. We absolutely should. There are biblical values that connect to politics. There absolutely are. But politicians will never bring about the kingdom of God on earth. A kingdom that represents the values of Jesus Christ will never be accomplished through the political process. It will only be accomplished by the power that he has to exert all things unto his will. That's it. So Paul says, your polytuma, your citizenship is in heaven. And he says, we eagerly await from there a king, a savior. That is, we go, I know the day is coming when the king will come here. And he will save the world. As as Handel's Messiah says, the kingdoms of this world will become what? The kingdom of our God and of his Christ. So we fix our eyes on Jesus and we say, I'm waiting for that day. What does it look like to eagerly await while we live here? What does that tension look like? We say, I live in this place, but I'm waiting for that place to come here. What does it look like to be a citizen? What do you do as a citizen of the United States? Well, well, maybe you vote for whatever values you think will be best for our country. But there's more to it than that, right? Right? You might pledge an allegiance to the United States of America. You endeavor to follow the laws of the United States of America. Maybe you sing songs about it. You proclaim the goodness of the country that you love. That's what it is to be a citizen. You say, I am a citizen of heaven. And so what am I going to do? I'm going to seek to represent the values of the kingdom to which I belong and to worship the God of the kingdom to which I belong. Because I know one day he's coming back and what I want is for as many as will trust in him to hear the message that the kingdom you're longing for, the place that you want, it's coming here. So you eagerly await. You lock your eyes on Jesus and you don't move. Several years ago, I was talking with my wife's grandmother before she passed away. Grandma Apple was her name. She lived in the Midwest She did make apple pies, actually. She was married to Milford Apple. My guess is you haven't heard that name in a while, Milford. But Milford was a World War II vet. And Grandma Apple, Fern, she told us this story one afternoon when we were talking to her. She said, uh, at the beginning of his service in World War II... He was called away to training, and his training was in New York, and he was going to train in New York, and then he was going to ship overseas. 
Now, you got to remember, this is before there are, there are iPhones, this is before there's email. There's no real way to contact one another other than a letter that you would write on what used to, it was called paper, and there was a pen, and you would put it in the mail, right? So, so she gets a letter from him after a little while into his training, and he says, look, before they ship us out, we're going to have leave for one weekend in New York City, and I'm going to be at this hotel, and so can you come and see me? Before I leave. So, so Fern goes to New York City and she said she got there, she got to the hotel and then she realized she had a problem because there were thousands of servicemen staying at the hotel that weekend. All of them with very short hair, all of them dressed in uniform and she had no idea when Milford was coming to the hotel exactly. She knew the day. She didn't know the time and she was afraid that she'd miss him. So she said, you know what I had to do? She said, I went to that hotel lobby and I sat on a chair and I watched the door. For eight hours, she watched the door. She said, I didn't get up to go to the bathroom because if I got up to go to the bathroom, I might miss him and then I'd never find him again. So I watched and I waited because I knew he would come through the door. Paul says we eagerly wait a Savior from heaven. We watch and we wait because we know he's coming. And he will bring the kingdom of God to earth. And in the meanwhile, what we do is we represent him. He says, when he comes, what will he do? He will transform us. We'll change. Our bodies will change. Our hearts will change. Our surroundings will change. We no longer will be living in enemy territory, but we will be living in the kingdom of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so what Paul says is you transfer your allegiance then. The values of the enemy will die. All of the things that we believe will bring us joy and lasting hope will fade. Except for Jesus. So how do we transfer our allegiance? What does it look like to transfer our allegiance from earthly things to the kingdom of heaven? Let me offer a few thoughts How can we live as citizens of heaven? First is this, you remember your primary allegiance. I remember years ago talking with a friend of mine I've mentioned before. His name was Celestin Musakura. Lots of his family was killed in the 1994 Rwandan genocide and its aftermath. And many who were involved were those who claimed the name of Christ, and yet they engaged at times in violence against other Christians who were from another tribe, either Tutsi or Hutu. And I asked him, why did that happen? And he said, here's why it happened, because he said the people were first Hutu or Tutsi, and only second were they the people of Jesus. He says, we have to reverse that. Where's your first allegiance? 
It is not to a country because country will fade. It is not to a party because parties will disappear. It is not to some neighborhood or tribe or some career group or some racial group or ethnic group. It is to the kingdom of heaven. So we remember our first allegiance. Secondly, we set our minds on the things of heaven. It may be that that we need to turn off the constant flow of input, at least for a while, turn off the flow of input from the world. Shut Facebook down. Shut Instagram down if you find that it provokes in you anxiety or fear or anger about the things of this earth. It may be that you need to begin to adjust your perspective of what the good life looks like and the things you believe God has promised you. And instead, when you wake up in the morning, you fill your mind with the Word of God. Maybe instead of opening Facebook, you open that Bible app and you read that verse of the day. It takes you three minutes and you set your mind on your first allegiance. And you begin to engage in, the, in reading and knowing and meditating upon and memorizing the Word of God. And then thirdly, you develop God-honoring habits. That is, we retrain the, the patterns of our minds and our hearts through, through spirit-empowered discipline. Over time, I begin to change what I do throughout my day. To invest time in prayer when previously I might invest time chasing the things of this earth. To invest time in God's Word on a disciplined basis. I read a book years ago about habits, and one of the points it made is this. You can't actually get rid of a habit. That may surprise you. All you can do is replace it. You can replace one habit with another. And so we begin to develop habits that train us to focus on our first allegiance. If you don't already read God's Word regularly, start somewhere. If you don't already pray regularly to ask Him to help you proclaim and reflect His kingdom, begin with a couple minutes a day and then five minutes a day and begin to develop God-honoring habits that allow you to follow Him so that we remember and reflect our primary allegiance because we're citizens of heaven. Would you pray with me? Father, we're grateful for the morning. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to worship you. We thank you for the opportunity to hear from your word. Lord, we pray that we would be people who remember our first allegiance, pray that we would trust you, that all that we need is, is found in Jesus Christ, that the things that will last forever are not found on this earth, but in your kingdom. So Father, I pray that we'd retrain our hearts, our minds, our bodies to, to pursue your values. Let us be faithful, even as we live in the territory of the enemy. Father, I pray we'd be driven by your Spirit rather than merely wherever the wind blows. Lord, we thank you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.